0: Hello friends, my name is Brenna, and I'm Danny, and, and this, this is LAGO, Lago Stories. Stories. Today's episode contains graphic information that some listeners may find disturbing. Listener's discretion is advised.
1: Welcome back LAGO Story fans. Today's episode will be told by Brenna. I know our voices sound similar, but just a tidbit, whoever starts the intro is the one telling the story that week. So this week, I'm going to kick it off and turn the tables to Brenna for her story. Thanks,
0: Danny, And boy, oh boy, do I have a story for you today. Today's story is completely bonkers, but I don't want to give too much background information on the perpetrator or the crimes just yet, because when I first heard about this case, to be completely honest, I didn't think it was a true crime story. So I want you all to be just as surprised as I was. I've heard you say a lot of little tidbits about this one.
1: So I'm excited to jump right in and get to hear this quote unquote, true crime story. Thanks.
0: Well, yes, and I want to tell you first about the Andrews family. The Andrews family lived in Townsend, Massachusetts in 1986, and the family consisted of Brian Andrews and his two daughters, Annie, who was 15, and Jessica, who was 8. The Andrews family was, you know, typical, normal family, but they did just recently lose their mother to cancer. And when I say recently, I mean recently as in like the last four months. So, Brian and both of his daughters were going through a lot and grieving um, their beloved mother and Brian, his wife, but they were also trying to get back into a somewhat normal routine.
1: Yeah, that's completely understandable with having two young daughters and having a significant loss like that. I, I'm sure I couldn't imagine what Brian was going through.
0: Yeah, so he's now a single parent and, you know, I don't think it'll ever go back to quote-unquote normal but Mm -hmm. you know they're trying to pick up the pieces right yeah um so one day the girls receive a phone call from a boy named danny who said he received their home phone number from someone that went to their school over the next few phone conversations danny tells the girls that he is 16 years old and describes himself as blonde well educated has an athletic build and lives nearby sounds like a catch right
1: Wait, so you mean to tell me that these girls were just receiving random phone calls from some boy that's just calling them and wanting to entertain a conversation?
0: Correct, yeah. And I think because the girls are younger, you know, they are more naive. And, you Mm -hmm. know, he introduced himself as, oh, someone from your school gave me your number. So it kind of starts that relationship as not really a stranger, right? Yeah, for
1: sure. Did their dad know about this? Like, what was his involvement with what was going on? I just feel like I would be pretty concerned if my two daughters were taking phone calls from some random
0: boy. Sure. So, uh, Brian, at this point in time, I don't think he knew too much about Danny. Mm-hmm. Um, He does work a lot of evenings, so um, later on you'll see that he's not home when things start shaking up okay that makes more sense yes so annie definitely thought danny was a catch since danny and annie were close in age and had communicated over the phone for several phone conversations they decided to meet up for a date but when annie first meets danny she is completely shocked that blonde jock that she thought of him as was all a lie in front of her stood a greasy brunette boy and danny i sent you a picture would you mind describing him for me Yeah, so definitely not blonde. Uh, Even though this picture is black and
1: white, I can definitely see super brunette, almost black hair. He does look a little greasy, kind of very sharp bone structure, like kind of sunken in eyes. Honestly, like nothing that he described himself as would be what I would picture this boy to be. The complete opposite, almost. Yeah, oh my gosh, I mean,
0: he doesn't have... You can't really tell his his body shape here. I wouldn't call it not an athletic build, but everything else is pretty much completely opposite. Now being catfished before catfishing was even a thing is one thing, right? But the date gets even more weird. In casual conversation, Danny learns that Annie's mother had recently passed away and seems to bombard Annie with unusual and quite frankly, inappropriate questions. Annie later claimed that she thought he was obsessed with learning about her mother's death, asking questions like how she felt at the exact moment of her death and how much she suffered. So we definitely understand why the date lasts only an hour when Annie makes an excuse to get out of it and heads home.
1: Yeah, not only was she catfished, clearly, between the two, the description and what he was, but also like just that interaction is so awkward. I mean, when people tell me things that make you feel a bit uncomfortable, I get so awkward already. I can't even imagine asking questions like that. I mean, I especially—you've never met, and you lied you about lied. everything that was about you. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm happy that she at least trusted her gut and was like, you know what? <laughs> I think this is an me. I'm out. out. Me.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. Bye. yeah. See you later. Exactly. Now, leaving that strange encounter behind, she and her sister one night decide to try a séance. Now, the girls didn't really expect much to come out of the séance, but it was more out of the normal. Being a teenager, they're curious and something fun to pass the time. Later that same night, though, the girls begin to hear knocking on their bedroom walls. <laughs> okay, let me clarify. Did you say seance? I said seance. (laughs) Okay.
1: I just feel like that really escalated for me. I, like, we went from catfishing on a date to full-blown let's perform a seance. Yeah. So was this, like, something the girls were into? Is this something that was a result of, like, oh, gosh, we had, like, this awkward encounter with another person. Let's just try to perform this. To see if we make things better like i just feel like it went from zero to 100 real
0: quick and i'm confused sure yeah no it was kind of thrown at me as well i couldn't find the exact dates like the original story that i had heard this from it was actually a tv show a dramatized version and Mm -hmm. it it almost seemed like it was the same night but in the research that i did It wasn't the same night. So yeah, it was kind of thrown at me as well. It was just like this boy Danny and then seance. I can only assume that, you know, maybe they heard about this at school and with their mother recently passing, it was... You know, kind of something, hey, maybe it'll work, but not really expecting anything.
1: Yeah, I remember at a young age trying to do what is the other thing things a board.
0: Yes. And people moving, and you're like, oh my god, oh my god. Yes. <laughs> and I even, I don't know if you've ever done the Ouija board, but I've done the Ouija board a couple of times. And it, it is spooky, but also nothing has ever seriously happened for me either
1: yeah the only thing that happened for me was light as a mother and i was out after
0: that <laughs> <laughs> okay annie and jessica both are shocked when they realize that the seance must have worked the two girls and the dead of the night begin to communicate with the rhythmic knocking and the spirit soon begins answering their questions amazingly they're communicating with their mother once again or so they thought Uh uh-uh nope (laughs) after several nights of the knocking the girls began to realize that this spirit could not be their mother but possibly a demon that they unknowingly allowed in their home the knocking became so frequent that the girls were losing sleep and they also realized that items in the home began to disappear shortly afterwards they also noticed that furniture was being rearranged and items appeared to be knocked off tables and scattered across the floor
1: so i do want to backtrack when they're doing this sequence of knocking as like a form of communication is it like oh my gosh i'm hearing voices or is it knock this amount of times for yes or this amount of times
0: for no yes it's more of like yes or no questions only and the knocking you know one knock for yes two knocks for no something like that um but yeah there was no voices it was mainly just knocking So after that, then it just escalated to the point
1: where it was just so much knocking and then the furniture was being arranged. Like it was a scale of escalation and not like all at once.
0: Yes, it it seems like over the next few nights, it says several nights, but I would say maybe like a week, it kind of escalated. And yeah, there will be a lot of escalation (laughs) in this story. they are already there, so. Yes, Concerned for their own safety, Jessica and Annie tell their father about the demon, but Brian believed that the girls were the ones causing the destruction in their own home and chalked it up to the emotional stress of losing their mother.
1: Which, I I mean, being in Brian's shoes to play devil's advocate, I can definitely understand where he's coming from. Like, sure. He just lost his wife. He now has two young daughters that he has to raise by himself along with working. It's That's already a lot of stress on itself. And then have another weird interaction with the girls of these forms of knocking. And I mean, just talking about it, we're already joking like, whoa, what is happening? I couldn't even imagine as a parent how he would react in real life of that actually happening to him
0: exactly yeah so much is going on for him and this is just kind of one thing that honestly he's like i don't want to deal with this like Mm -hmm. there's no such thing as ghosts i can only assume um and i would probably do the same thing to be honest even though i i watch a lot of spooky movies and even like true crime I've never seen a ghost, so I would be quick to dismiss it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, there's one thing to watch Ghostbusters and our favorite true crime dramas and another to
0: experience it. Exactly. And I think as adults or most adults, you try to rationalize something that you don't understand. Mm -hmm, For sure. So one evening in January of 1987, the girls alone in the home begin to hear knocking again. However, this time the sound appears to be coming from the basement instead of the bedroom walls as usual. The girls carefully make their way down to investigate, armed with a knife from the kitchen, and in the basement they find in blood red writing. And here, if you could read this quote for me. Yeah. Quote,
1: I'm in your room. Come and find me.
0: The girls, obviously panicked and frightened, run to their neighbor's house for assistance. And once Brian returns home, he again believes the girls are responsible and forces them to go to therapy to assist in coping with their emotional issues.
1: Okay. I know, uh, beginning, like, just talking about that, that's one thing. But to have writing on your walls in what looks like blood-red writing, yes. that's a whole nother escalation. So... I, I'm shocked at his reaction real... I mean, I don't I don't know. Again, I don't know how... It, I'm, I'm not a parent. I don't have kids. So it, it would be hard to see how I'd react in that situation. I mean, therapy after I thoroughly... I mean, if I hear a weird noise, I'm like, Marcus, my dog, go get him. <laughs> like, uh-uh, I'm not playing around. So I can't even imagine sure. what I would do after I saw that in my home. But again, I would also like... If I figured out everything was okay... That is clearly not normal behavior, and definitely seeing a therapist would be my next step. Yes,
0: absolutely. And things do seem to calm down for a bit, but we're going to fast forward to several weeks later, another similar and just as eerie event takes place in the Andrews home. The girls hear knocking coming from the bedroom walls, and when they make their way up to the room, they are greeted with, yet again, a message in blood-red writing that says, I'm back. Find me if you can. Again, the girls run to their neighbor's house where the neighbor calls Brian to come home and explains that the girls are panicked. Frustrated, Brian enters the home to prove to the girls that no one is in the home. Except, he finds that the home is in even more of a disarray than what the neighbor and the girls explained while they were in another location. Someone or something was in the home. Yeah, at (laughs) at this point... I would be in
1: full panic mode. That's like the feeling of your heart is dropping to your butt and you're like, oh my gosh, this is actually happening. My eyes are not deceiving me. The girls aren't lying. I can't believe this is actually happening.
0: Time to be an adult. (laughs) I've never had someone break into my home, but that is also one of my biggest fears. Like Someone invading that personal space and to imagine that moment of someone being in the home... I. I would poo my pants, honestly. <gasps> <laughs> yes, girl. Oh
1: my gosh. I
0: couldn't even... Oh no. Yes. That's terrifying. But Brian makes his way to Annie's room alone, and there he finds another message, written in red, that states, marry me. As Brian looks over to the other side of the room, he sees a boy wearing his deceased wife's dress, wearing a blonde wig and her makeup, but even more disturbing, he's holding a hatchet. That boy is Danny LaPlante. That is
1: honestly the most disturbing thing I have ever listened to. Was he wearing like this dress that you're describing? Was it her wedding dress? Was it just a random
0: dress? Sure. So in the dramatization that I saw is called Your Worst Nightmare. It looked like it was a wedding dress, but I couldn't find anything that, you know, said you it was find that, yeah. yeah, a wedding dress, but a dress and I'm assuming that it was his deceased wife's wig as well because mm-hmm. she did she pass cancer. from cancer and yeah. so it is possible that, you know, she wore a wig. But an in, in full makeup, holding a hatchet. It's not enough to just be in someone's home, but to be wearing a deceased family's members clothing i it's it's over the top
1: yeah i mean you take everything when someone passes as sacred you know it was theirs this is what they wore when we did xyz so to kind of take that and pervert it in such a disturbing way is I, I mean i just get goosebumps like ugh so icky to me and it just really shows to the state of mind of this person and who this person really is like i'll be interested to hear more but yeah that's
0: just that is over the top yeah i agree and don't worry i will definitely tell you more about him (laughs) now a struggle ensues between danny and brian but luckily brian was able to escape physically unharmed I'm sure emotionally, that's a very different story. <laughs> but yeah, just being in that situation
1: is traumatizing enough, let alone not es- er, er, escaping yes. like some sort of encounter where you were going to be physically harmed as well. Like, oh my gosh. Exactly.
0: And as the police arrived to investigate, the Andrews family finally receive some answers. The police know that the writings on the wall were all written in ketchup and that Danny was able to access the home Through a crawl space that was built in behind a cupboard built into the wall of Annie's room. So it was outdoor access, but it Mm -hmm. led directly to Annie's room. When police open the cupboard, they find Danny curled up inside and place him under arrest. As the police continue their investigations, they find that Danny was actually living in the walls of the Andrews home for about two months and he was able to move around freely through passageways that led into different areas of the home. Police also find multiple peepholes made in the walls so that Danny could watch Annie from whichever room she was in. What's
1: like one, how are you able to live in this situation for 2 months? I don't I don't understand that. I find it really disturbing that everything has centered and had access around Annie, like the peepholes, the whole cupboard itself, like just horribly icky to me. It's just not a good recipe for me at all.
0: Yes, and he always hid when Brian was home because I think since the girls already believed that there was, you know, a demon in the home or some paranormal activity, they would never second guess it. Whereas Brian, if he heard something in the walls, he'd be like, what the heck? What is this? Um, And also he did come and go, so it wasn't like he was, you know, fully placed up there he was 16 right so he still had to go home um but yeah he actually could walk through different areas of the home because of how the home was built in Massachusetts and here in Texas we do not have basements so <laughs> that's <laughs> it's hard for me. <laughs> yeah it's hard for me to really understand but the home is older you know through crawl space in the basement attic in the walls they found debris and Physical evidence that he was living there, sometimes even sleeping there overnight.
1: So just to go back on the understanding that this boy is 16 years old and he has a place to go home, how often was he spending time in there? Do you know like how many hours he was in there a day or like what that looked like? Because I mean, even on the other side of it, if my 16-year-old is out looking in peepholes for hours on hours... Like, I would know that and kind of report it and
0: see what's going on. Sure, yeah. And I'm about to explain um, Daniel's childhood, which unfortunately it it doesn't seem like he had a lot of parental supervision. Mm -hmm. Um, He was, you know, out and about and getting into trouble often. So I don't think the mother really, not that she didn't care, but really didn't pay attention to who he was with, where he was, and what he was doing. Yeah, that's
1: really upsetting to hear. Yes.
0: Yeah, so who is Daniel Laplant? Daniel LaPlante was born May 15th in 1970 in Townsend, Massachusetts. And again, he unfortunately had a very rough childhood. He suffered physical and sexual abuse at the hands of multiple adults growing up. Because he was still a minor at the time of his crimes, most details of the abuse were kept anonymous, but we do know that his father was his main abuser. Danny struggled in school after being diagnosed with dyslexia, and his classmates at North Middlesex High School referred to him as creepy and weird. He was also referred to a psychiatrist by school officials due to his bad hygiene and abnormal behavior. The psychiatrist diagnosed him with hyperactivity disorder, which is said that he took very badly. The psychiatrist later made sexual advances towards Daniel for the following year and sexually abused him. Yet again, another adult who was supposed to help him fails him.
1: Yeah, that's really upsetting to hear that he was trying to get help, seeking out help through different avenues and then that person just totally took advantage of him and was just an abuser himself like how are you supposed to recover from that it's it's just upsetting to see that
0: exactly yeah it seems that he was abused as a young child and that abuse continued into high school middle school and high school which I know high school was not my favorite it was already rough so what
1: your high school was awkward (laughs) what (laughs) yes uh yeah amen
0: (laughs) (laughs) but yes outside of school daniel spent his evenings breaking into homes in the townsend area and stealing valuables he first began this at the age of 15. Laplante would also be known to leave personal items behind or move objects around in the homes he burglarized making it obvious someone had been in the home, but not immediately noticeable. Later, he begins to break into the homes purely for the opportunity to play mind games with the homeowners so when he's doing this is he like thinking
1: oh I'm going to move this around to make them think something's going on like I just feel like that's very bizarre behavior to do and like a burglary you're you're typically in you're out you're trying to get as much as you can for quick cash I mean but he's 15 years old and his biggest concern is making sure like oh i need to move xyz to make sure they notice that things are missing and moved sure so is
0: that the whole point like the paranormal weird behavior vibes so it's mainly his mo now clearly in the andrews family he was able to kind of continue that paranormal activity because of the seance right Mm -hmm. it kind of led up to that but in the beginning and it seems like a a small progression first he's just getting in and getting out and then later he leaves objects behind and then later he starts trying to play mind games it, it seems that he really enjoys being able to leave something behind it kind of makes me think that you know he wanted somebody to to see him he wanted to be seen
1: Yeah, and I can understand this behavior from his background, like not giving him any excuses at all. This behavior is obscene. There's signs written all over the walls before I'm sure you're getting to the crime of this happening, but it's understandable of like why his behavior is the way he is because of how
0: he w- grew up sure and of course again like you said he was getting the help that he desperately needed and that just further traumatized him so really really unfortunate yeah
1: just the cards were not in his favor for
0: this one exactly now it is believed that LePlant received the andrews family home phone number from a previous break-in although this has never been confirmed. It is also believed that Daniel was wanting Annie and Jessica to discover the ghost of their deceased mother, but it's unclear whether or not he believed that this disguise would pass as their mother or if he wanted the girls to know it was him to further terrify them. Either way, we know that the Andrews family was lucky to make it out of the house alive that evening.
1: Yeah, his... His actions are just getting more and more escalated. It, it really is super lucky that nothing, I mean, obviously very traumatized, not watering down their experience, but they uh, it does sound like they're very lucky to be alive with the way things were progressing with him. Exactly.
0: Now, after Daniel was arrested, following the Andrews break-in, he was placed in a juvenile detention center until October 1987. As soon as he is released though, he is back to his old ways, breaking into neighbors' homes. During a robbery in November that same year, LaPlante steals two handguns from a neighbor's house, and unfortunately, that will turn this story downwards from here. Uh-oh. December 1st, 1987, Daniel breaks into the home of the Gustafson family, which was only about half a mile away from his own home. Now, what I could tell, they were technically neighbors from behind, with a forest or wooden land in between the two homes, while Danny is in the home, Priscilla Gustafson, who was 33 years old and pregnant, returns home with her two children, Abigail and William, and they come face to face with Laplante. Yeah, I really don't like where this is going. Andrew Gustafson, the husband to Priscilla and father to Abigail and William, was a practicing lawyer and attempts to call home three times, starting at 3:45 p.m wanting to celebrate with his wife after closing a big deal earlier that day, but never received an answer. As Andrew returns home to find his wife's car in the driveway, he will later recall that the house was eerily dark and silent. When he enters their master bedroom, he finds Priscilla laying face down on the bed and her skin was gray. He immediately called 911 and when police arrive, they find Abigail face down in the downstairs bathtub and William face down in the upstairs bathtub.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: Both the children had been drowned, and Abigail also suffered blunt trauma to her head and compression to her neck. Abigail also had multiple scratches and bruises, suggesting that she fought back. Abigail would have celebrated her 8th birthday on December 8th, and William had turned 5 the month prior. Priscilla was raped, sodomized, and shot in the head multiple times through a pillow that was placed over her head. Police also found several items believed to be used as restraints and gags in the home.
1: I mean, this compared to what he was doing at the Andrews' home, just an- another escalation. I mean, just horrible, horrible crimes to young people and women who, who are pregnant too. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah.
0: And it, and it it is interesting because I saw a theory and I didn't originally, um, include it in the story, but it's interesting that you brought that up because it's theorized that because he had those two handguns that he had stolen from a previous break-in, he now had what they thought the power, right? Mm -hmm. To do anything. So he is pretty small in stature and, they note that with these guns, now he's able to restrain them. Now he's able to, he couldn't physically, you know, overpower Priscilla and the two kids. Yeah. So that's interesting to note. Fortunately, it didn't take long for police to connect the triple homicide to LaPlante, but when police arrive at his home, he immediately flees. This would be the start of a 40-hour manhunt. Wow. I mean, I don't know if you
1: saw that Night Stalker episode on, or series on Netflix. Yes. I mean, just with what he's doing with, even from the beginning where he's just going in and trying to move things around to spook people, like just different MOs, different ways of committing crimes and different crimes itself. It's just, they sound eerily similar and it, I, I just don't like it.
0: <laughs> yes. And, but the crazy part is, Daniel's only 17 at this point.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, at 17 years old, I was scared to sneak out of the house. Like, I'm, <laughs> I can't, ugh. Yeah, yes.
0: Meanwhile, a fleeing Daniel continues to break into homes in a nearby town, Pepperell, and steals a thirty-two caliber revolver, among other items. Daniel then makes his way a few towns over and breaks into the home of Pamela McKella. He then kidnaps her and orders her at gunpoint to drive them in their van towards Fitchburg. Pamela bravely escapes his grasp by jumping out of her vehicle, and LaPlante continues driving where he is later spotted by someone that recognized his picture from the news. When police finally catch up with LaPlante, they find him hiding in an air Industrial Park dumpster. When Daniel is brought into police custody, they find Abigail's hair on his socks, cementing his involvement with the murders. Later, when police are booking LaPlante at Concord, it is then revealed that Daniel had a loaded thirty two caliber hidden in his underwear and a bullet handed in his shoe. They will also later find the twenty two revolver used in the murders hidden in a glove compartment in a Jeep located at his home. Thank God for
1: that person that spotted him. Like, yes. oh my gosh. I know this was already, what did you say, 48 hours? Yes. Who knows how long that could have gone on if they didn't
0: say anything exactly if you see something say something and trust your gut because your your gut will tell you yeah if it's inkling anything out
1: of the sorts like oh my gosh you never know what small piece of evidence can help someone in the long run also
0: us being true crime fans right we follow up with maybe not so much daily in the news, but we kind of know what to look for and and what to think is suspicious and Mm -hmm. how to spot that. Yeah, for sure. One year after the Gustafsons murders, Daniel LaPlante is convicted of three counts of murder and sentenced to three life sentences without the possibility of parole. He will later be resentenced to life with the possibility of parole in 45 years after the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled that juvenile life without parole sentences were unconstitutional.
1: I always find it interesting when they say, like, here's your life sentences, and then after that, if something does
0: happen, you still get 45 years. Yes. Like, 100% you're not relieving. Exactly. In an interview in 2007 with The Sun, Daniel's trial judge Robert Barton recalls the 18-year-old LaPlante showing no remorse or emotion throughout the trial. Later in that same interview, Judge Barton recalls a moment during the trial he will never forget and still sends chills down his spine 20 years later. When Andrew Gustafson took the stand, he was asked why he didn't search for his children after finding his wife. Gustafson began to cry, and he told the jury he was afraid he would find them dead. Mm. After seeing your wife like that, I would be terrified to search for my and kids. And it, it gave me chills when I first read it. Mm-hmm. Devastating. Now that should be the end of the story, right? Well, it isn't. Daniel Laplante has continued to cause havoc from inside the prison system. Daniel filed multiple lawsuits. Again, from an interview from the Sun by Lisa Redman, we learned that, and I quote: In January two thousand and four, U.S. District Court Judge Nancy Gertner awarded Laplante's civil attorney Palmer and Dodge nearly one hundred thousand in attorney fees against the Board of Prisons for violating LaPlante's civil rights, end quote. Now, LaPlante claimed that he was a practicing Satanist and that the prison violated those rights by not providing materials needed to carry out certain Satanic rituals.
1: I'm not an expert in Satanic rituals by any means, but I feel like anything needed for those is probably not allowed
0: in prison anyway. <laughs> I agree. And now, it was going to be another lawsuit where he and his attorneys were awarded another $100,000, and this is because you won't believe it. He complained that his First Amendment rights were restricted because they seized adult pornography sent to him and policy permits commercial erotica. (laughs) So you're telling me that prison also now allows porn? Apparently so. I... I didn't know, but they also... I think they made that distinction of commercial erotica, Mm -hmm. right? Like, so it's not homemade. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, (laughs) oh my gosh. This is insane. Exactly. A big topic I saw while researching this case was the debate on whether or not juveniles convicted of violent crimes should have a reduced sentence in order to have the opportunity to re-engage with society. Now, I know some may have an opinion on this already, but before you answer i do want to provide you with daniel laplan's own words in 2017 while appealing for a reduced sentence he stated and i quote i do not have the words to fully express my profound sorrow but i am truly sorry for the harm i have caused from the very essence of who i am from the death of my soul i am sorry end quote and i also want to add that andrew gustafson passed away in 2014 but upon his deathbed, it is claimed that Gustav is and I quote, don't ever let him out. He should rot in prison, end quote.
1: Yeah, it's hard to see what he's saying has any value because it's just words, right? But he also can't, I mean, besides behavior in prison and things like that, it's hard to see if any of that would ever
0: be warrant for him to get parole, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And I think for certain cases I'm all for, you know, juveniles if they made a mistake. Um, you know, even like a violent crime. But in this case it was it was really, really intense, especially with his psyche and his MO. You know, he liked to to torment people. He liked yeah. to play mind games with them. But also hearing that, you know, it may just be me thinking everyone is a good person but you know I kind of felt that he was sorry it's it's hard to say because at 17 I was completely different than at 27 so yeah Yeah, I definitely agree
1: with that and I definitely agree with the statement of like case by case situation for these for sure but I mean I just have to go back to what he was doing and how young he was at a and how horrific the crimes he was doing, it's really hard to say that like, even with the right rehabilitation that he would ever be a functional person in society until
0: he was much, much older in life. Yeah, and I'm no expert um, in psychology or psychiatry, but I do understand that the behavior was not expected, but I can, I can understand from all of his traumas, the repeated traumas of close family members and trusted adults that, you know, he may have some bizarre behavior. Um, but I don't know if, if that trauma will be lifelong or, if there is a way to to overcome those troubles. yeah like can those things be relearned or not for exactly. sure exactly especially when you're at a young age and your brain is is growing mm-hmm. and that my friends is the story of daniel laplant what are your thoughts on Laplante? do you think he is now remorseful and should be able to get out of prison let us know we would love to hear your feedback on this episode leave us a comment or a review and let us know what you think If you have a case suggestion, reach out to us through our website, lawghoststories.net. You can also check out the source material for this episode while you're there. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at lawghoststories. We will be back with a new episode in a couple weeks, but until then, stay safe out there. It's a weird world. Thank you to Alexander Nakarada for allowing us to use his sound nightmare for theme music.